I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture cod part... Cod past. Cod piece. <laughs> Should we try again, Pounder? The weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. How's that month off? <laughs> We've returned after a month off that we enjoyed working on poisonal projects. Hold on. We welcome you in. Welcome to the house of fun. Now I've come of age. Welcome to the house of fun. Have so you been planning that for four weeks? I've just had two YouTube videos paused on the exact... I've spent ages finding them. <laughs> but annoyingly, my segues were quite clunky. <laughs> Pandora, I have some extraordinarily shocking news of personal growth. That I have... Pandora- you don't look any taller than usual. <laughs> Pandora and I have been chatting before the record for an hour and I've kept this back from you because I wanted your live reaction. Still haven't finished my Easter egg. You still haven't finished your Easter egg? I've decided to spread it out this year. Isn't that, don't you think that's so mature? I feel like I was expecting something more momentous than that. Now, you, a little birdie told me that you ate yours in one sitting. I told you that I ate the equivalent of four cream eggs. Fortnum's very kindly sent the Hilo some posh version of cream eggs. That's interesting because the other host of the Hilo haven't seen any of them. You said you didn't want them. (laughs) You said that you already had too much chocolate. That is so the words of someone who just like has eaten too much sugar on one day. So I took them all down. And in fact, I tried to hide the fourth sort of delicious fondant egg on top of my husband's curtains at his parents house but then i was like i'll just i'll just eat it and get it out of the way that so this is what i do every single easter and i decided this year to not have that attitude of just like well i just don't want it in the house anymore so i've just got to stuff it down my gob just got to get it all out of the way it's so unhealthy to think of chocolate like that so this year i was like no i'm gonna try and just spread it out as a treat the other chocolate that you didn't want but are probably going to be rude and say i deprived you of is bbc iplayer sent us some chocolates with people's faces on it so i ate louis through Oh, I'm I jealous ate, of that. I ate Phoebe Waller-Bridge. <laughs> I could. I think that would feel like sacrilege. Actually. I've still got some people in my pantry. If you want to meet them. <laughs> Speaking of Louis Theroux, Desert Island Discs is taking one of its seasonal breaks, and Louis Theroux is the return episode. Oh, I know. I can't wait. I can't wait for that. Yeah, I actually watched his um, most hated family in America while we were off, which was made back in 2007, but popped up on iPlayer. And it's with the this... The Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. 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 And apparently, there's an updated one of the children that have now left the church. Yeah. How did you spend your time in April, Panda? I spent the month discovering new flat whites around the UK. In a small seaside town in Kent, 
I found a cafe that offered a large flat white, which is unheard of because a flat white normally only exists at one size. But at this cafe in Kent, they basically scale it up depending on how big you want. So I got a flat white the size of a frappuccino, which must have been about six shots of espresso. Mm. I was literally vibrating afterwards. It took me all day to drink it. And however, to rein it back, I didn't go out for one night in three weeks. So that's pretty frugal. It was divine. What did you do every evening? Just work? Yeah, just worked and read on my window seat. Turned my phone on about once a day. God, it was nice. Did you leave the house at all? Yes, I tried to leave the house every day. How long for? Also, I was still... Uh, I was cobbling together lots of different bits of childcare, so I had to drive around okay. different areas, which is why I went on a flat white tour of the UK. <laughs> I'm interested just because I... You know when you're that immersed in a work. No, I still went on it. I still made sure I went on a little walk each That's day. That's good. To yeah. get a flat white. Yeah. <laughs> While we're away, a lot has been happening for obvious reasons. The news cycle does not stop just because the high-low does, including the tragic death of journalist Lyra McKee, leading to a lot of discussions about the flourishing of the new IRA and, of course, the devastating Sri Lanka bombings. In good news, I learnt that the NHS Trust are spending £2.3 billion on mental health in the next five years, which is the biggest ever investment in mental health services and will help 350,000 more children and young adults than it does currently and 380,000 adults, which I thought was brilliant. Mm. Mental health is at the core of so many of our social anxieties right now, tech particularly across social media, the economy, politics. This was actually announced in January of this year, but I missed it and I only heard it on Radio 4 last week. And I just wanted to flag it for anyone else that might have missed that good news because we talk a lot about the sort of dire situation of mental health, particularly in young people, but we don't often talk about the steps that are being made to tackle that or the Mm. money that's being spent Mm. and of course there's been a lot about the porn ban which comes into effect on the 15th of July and will essentially demand proof of age via a passport or a credit card not a debit card because you can get them before you're 18 Um, and it will basically check your date of birth before allowing entry to the website and this is in the hope that it will prevent young adolescents being exposed to porn and particularly violent or extreme porn what do you think Dolly do bans work Uh, Well, I think obviously teenagers will find a way around it in the way that we did by taking kind of fake ID or other people's ID to clubs or whatever. But I think basically I think this is a step in the right direction because the more difficult you can make things, uh, there will be a subsequent reduction in exposure. There just will be. And of course, like in any kind of prohibition move, there will also be a surge in kind of black market ways of being able to access it but I still think what else can they do you know I I think I think it's a step in the right direction and this isn't this is about specifically children accessing porn and that's where personally I think a lot of the damage is being done at the moment in terms of that's how young people are learning about sex I can remember when I was 11 years old and a friend me and a friend were in an IT class in school and we somehow clicked on a pop-up that brought up the most graphic sex scene I'd ever seen and our IT teacher got so flustered that her body unpopped (laughs) and I watched it ping up her back (laughs) one of my favourite memories that and she never went and popped it back up again either anyway what do you um, think do you think it will work so a teacher called Rachel Edmonds actually wrote into us about this she said and I'm inclined to agree that banning something just makes it sexier just make you know if you ban something it just makes kind of precocious young children and adolescents want to find it more um what she said which i thought was definitely quite interesting is that 
it's about kind of balancing. So the danger of young people being exposed to extreme porn is that they may think that that's like the default sexual activity, that that's how you should have sex and that's what you should expect from a partner. And you see that a lot, don't you, in kind of material where in that Louis III documentary, do you remember that was that boy accused of rape and he was talking about how he particularly liked a type of blowjob and yeah. the three was like where did that come from so she was saying it to counteract that it's just but not just children mate driving single for 10 years well seriously is yeah. like it's a problem specifically for men to- no totally so she was saying it's about education in schools so that even if they are exposed to this they don't think that that is like the default mm. sexual narrative because it's not most most people don't have sex like that she was like it's not about saying that it's kind of depraved but it's about offering a much more kind of naturalistic um, narrative of, yeah. around sex. And so it, you know, as it always does, it, it comes from education. Mm-hmm. It comes from how they're teaching it and how they're talking about um, not just sex education, but intimacy mm-hmm. and desire mm-hmm. and love. And female pleasure. That's another thing yeah. that I think is like, we're in urgent Really ab- absent and definitely absent from any kind of set historic sex education yeah. as well because yeah. obviously the primary aim was to shoot babies into a woman mm-hmm. that's how they're made <laughs> what made you miss the high low this month i was desperate for the high low earlier in april to discuss instagram i was with my completely brilliant friend nat who does a number of incredible things one of them uh, is listen to the high low every single week Hello, Nat. And another that she does is she does a trend forecasting. And we were having a fascinating discussion about the future of Instagram. And I love hearing her insight and wisdom on these things. And I don't know about you, Pandora, but I've started to feel in the last couple of months, for the first time since I've been on Instagram, which, Christ, I joined in 2012, I'm starting to feel a gear shift in mood a lot of my friends are coming off instagram a lot of my friends aren't using it for personal announcements anymore people are posting less i feel like there's maybe not generally but definitely in my world and a lot of my friends worlds it feels like there is a kind of general fatigue and suspicion around instagram that's coming properly into action And Nat and I were talking about how we think our grandchildren will be a generation who want the complete opposite of everything that we've desired, just because so often that's how kind of psychology and trends work, where they swing from one way to another, and how they could end up being a generation who want to be completely invisible. And invisibility um, and uh, privacy will be the most coveted thing, almost like that will be the new luxury and how is it that we will get there and we were thinking about you know either it would be a moment of mass terror or um is it getting kind of worse and worse before it gets better or the effects of instagram becoming more and more prevalently damaging or um we will follow celebrities and big brands and then she told me that the first one already has which is lush cosmetics which in april closed its facebook twitter and instagram channels the bbc reported announcing the news on twitter it said it was tired of fighting with algorithms and did not want to pay to appear in news feeds the firm which sells fragrant handmade soaps bath bombs and other body products asked customers to contact it by email phone or via its website we don't want to limit ourselves to holding conversations in one place we want social to be placed back in the hands of our communities from our founders to our friends it said in a statement 
And then the news story actually went on to say, last year, British pub chain Weatherspoons removed itself from social media, citing concerns about personal data misuse and the addictive nature of the platforms. And then the story ended with the subtle burn. It had a relatively small community of 6,000 on Instagram. (laughs) What do you make of of that story, Pandora? I think that's a really crucial um, element of it. Your suffix at the end is... I think a lot of these brands quitting social media with a big fanfare are brands that just weren't that good at it. But They're... Lush had half a million. Yes, but was that necessarily translating to sales or was that mm. kind of like, you know, empty followers, not all followers that engaged? I Can you I... not see, because you know much more about this than I do, can you not see other brands in the near future following suit? I think perhaps as a PR exercise, but not, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that kind of social grandstanding I, I think brand wise it's still as potent as ever because to build a community is literally the most successful way to build a modern business I mean millennial makeup and skincare brand Glossier is mm. worth billions now 2.1 billion because of Emily Weiss's ability to build a community on social media mm. and that is the difference between a very successful modern brand and a not very successful mm. one on a personal level I completely agree with you And I think it's very much about the visibility. I think invisibility will definitely become a luxury away from hyper-surveillance. And And assessment. That's the thing that I think people will want their break from. And also just like 360 sort of analysis of yourself and Mm. others. I feel very removed from Instagram now. I download it three or four times a week, which is a really good amount for me. I no longer want it to be a part of my everyday Um, I just don't find the white noise uh, makes me feel particularly calm or focused. It's not anything in particular that I find on there. It's just that I work on my own. And if I check Instagram, suddenly the lives of a million other people comes Mm. into my day Mm. all at once. And that to me seems like a very odd way to begin or end your day. So three or four times a week is enough for me to know what's going on. Although I do, of course, miss some stories, which is a shame because I do like watching my friends' stories. But now I just do what so many of my friends who aren't on Instagram do or people that don't use it a lot which is most people is you know you just send send pictures via WhatsApp yeah. don't rely yeah. on catching up with people via Instagram the story that honestly has warmed me for the whole month was that of a woman named Manira Abdullah who went into a coma after a car crash when she was holding her four-year-old son on the school run and woke up 27 years later with him by her side and the first word she said was his name oh he never gave up hope so I think that's just that's like completely so beautiful. over a quarter of a decade mm. she was in a coma and he just kept visiting all the time. In similarly joyous news, I was so in awe of modern science when I read that in Japan, the world's smallest surviving baby boy, who was delivered at 24 weeks after his mother was suffering from hypertension, was able to leave hospital and go home with his parents. He was fed by drops of his mother's milk on cotton buds on tiny <laughs> tubes, and he's now seven pounds, four ounces. I just think, obviously I know nothing about science, but I don't know, when I read that, I just kind of... Oh my God, marveled at that. Amazing what they can do. Yeah. That beautiful but mothership, which um, Francesca Segal wrote about her twins being born very premature. They were a couple of pounds each. Mm. Like it's just incredible. Um, yeah, what they can do now, especially with premature births. And in controversial news, in Spain, there has been a proposed ban on prostitution. Spain's ruling Socialist Workers' Party, who won the election this past weekend, has vowed to outlaw prostitution. 
Up until now, it was legal in Spain and brothels were commonplace. But in a late update in the manifesto, the party said not only would it criminalise the purchasing of sexual services, but also profiting from prostitution or advertising it. The party stated, Prostitution, of which we have declared ourselves to be abolitionists, is one of the cruelest forms of the feminization of poverty, as well as one of the worst forms of violence against women. It also has said it wants to clamp down on surrogacy agencies as these undermine women by treating their bodies and reproductive functions as merchandise. God, that's very interesting. It's the very way they divisive. put that, the feminization of poverty. Yeah, because there are a lot of people who would argue the exact opposite. So I'm, I'm not stating where I stand, but I do think it's a, a very bold move and hopefully will spark a very interesting conversation. I am completely on the fence, to be honest. I, can, I think both sides of the argument are really interesting and mm. really valid. Mm. And whilst I personally feel uncomfortable with women selling their bodies for sex i also feel uncomfortable with the idea of an imperious controlling of women's bodies some may argue yeah i'm absolutely on the fence and i implore other people to come join me on the fence which uh most people have now abandoned the fence is no longer a place where many people are sitting so come sit with me let's be calm and let me tell you when i try to sit on that fence in my columns or in my tweets it has gone down very badly we need to bring back the fact that is what's missing though in modern society is the bloody fence and everyone having increasingly exercised views on a quiet fence where everyone can just sit and fucking listen yeah exactly and in news of curiosity the remains of a previous unknown and very very tiny ancient human species have been found in caves in the philippines the fossilized bones and teeth are thought to have belonged to two adults and a juvenile and would have lived around fifty thousand years ago and would have been around at the same time as the hobbit species homo floresiensis It must be nice to see your grandparents in the news. An extraordinary insult, presumably based on the fact that I am not taller than the wind. (laughs) Do you remember when my dad met you at my book launch? He said, I met Pandora and her husband. Lovely, lovely couple. Very small. And they will have small children. And I've told you that's ironic because my daughter is oddly tall. I know, she is. So he can put that in his pipe and smoke it. (laughs) I have another story of a rather strange curiosity for you and also a public plea to Hilo listeners if they've studied this story or know this story or have any information on this story because the information is pretty scant online. So the reason why I started thinking about this is I was watching the amazing Netflix series, the new David Attenborough series, Our Planet, um, and there was this beautiful uh, footage of a sperm whale, a beautiful, enormous sperm whale, and As I was watching it, I just thought it looks like I could comfortably live in the stomach of that sperm whale and it would be the same square footage as my London flat. So I googled, can a human live in a whale? And uh, I found this like geeky uh, forum where scientists were arguing about like whether you would drown or, or whether you'd have enough of an air supply. And then I found the story of James Bartley. So this is taken from Wikipedia, which we don't normally do, but there's so other little information about it. During a whaling expedition off the Falkland Islands, Bartley's boat was attacked by a whale and he landed inside the whale's mouth. He survived the ordeal and was carved out of the stomach by his peers when they, not knowing he was inside, caught and began skinning the whale because of the hot weather which would have rotted the whale meat. It was said that he was in the whale for 36 hours and it was also said that his skin had been bleached by the gastric juices and that he was blind for the rest of his life. Why are you telling me this gross story? (laughs) He was, however, supposed to have returned to work within three weeks in some accounts. He died 18 years later, and his tombstone in Gloucester says, James Bartley, a modern-day Jonah. 
1896, an article named A Modern Jonah Proves His Story was published in the New York World and quoted a brief portion of this story as told by Reverend William Justin Harsher, along with some initial observations. This was followed about a week later by another article that briefly summarised some responses from readers, followed by a third article by William Stone, who related a similar story involving a massive man-eating shark. It then goes on to talk about the investigations that have been done since after these bombastic claims were made and how they've, it's become kind of something like folklore and there are so many inconsistencies to the story. So I would like to know, does anyone have any further reading on James Bartley? And also, can a marine scientist tell me whether I would be able to survive in the stomach of a sperm whale and for how long? Thank you very much. Presumably there's no oxygen inside of a sperm whale. Well, someone said that if it's not like cavernous in a stomach, it's filled with things. But you could eat that for your lunch. Eat what for your lunch? The plankton it's eating or whatever. But then what are you breathing? So this is where they were arguing in the floor. Yes, I mean, I'd say that that's a fairly large floor to the folklore. But whales, whales breathe. Yes, but they're not, we breathe and we don't have oxygen inside us. But whenever the whale would inhale oxygen... You, think the, you it, think the human would just take that it in? It wouldn't go into the cavity. Maybe when it opened its mouth, you'd have a big breath. Gust. <laughs> Charlie, have you got any thoughts? Do you believe her <laughs> whale story? I think she's being naive. How long were they alive for? 36 hours. Seems far-fetched. But it is, it is quite, it's like quite widely reported, but everyone, no one's kind of just got the evidence. So I just, I just want to know if it would be possible. Someone I'm sure will get in touch and tell you. Please do, because I barely got a wink of sleep last night. <laughs> our sub-editor Anna informed us that the mailbag was heaving with gems when she returned to it after our Easter break. So thank you so much to everyone who wrote in. Our author special with Elizabeth Day and all the wise and insightful things she and her book has to say on the notion of failure seem to resonate with a lot of you. For one listener, the discussion helped her to see her recent breakup in a new light. At the start of this year, I split up with my boyfriend of three and a half years. My decision to break up came as a big shock to him and it was very traumatic. We had talked so surely about getting married, growing old and having a life together that breaking up with him seemed almost inconceivable. It's been a very strange process for me after splitting up. I feel relieved that I made a decision true to how I felt. However, I haven't been able to shake a niggling feeling at the back of my mind that I couldn't put my finger on. After listening to your conversation with Elizabeth, I now understand that that feeling is one of failure. I feel that I let my boyfriend down. I did not live up to our life plans and the expectation that we had of each other. I caused a lovely relationship to end because I failed to feel the same way he did. Instead of feeling strong and empowered that I was finally true to myself, I felt guilty, ashamed and selfish for not fulfilling what I had promised Mm -hmm. him and what others had wished for us. Realising that I feel a sense of failure will allow me to try and address it. It's a case of understanding that, yes, my relationship eventually failed, but it didn't fail because I failed. It failed because I wasn't in love. And that's just how it goes sometimes. I so understand that that woman's letter. I just think it's I was thinking about this recently, the way that we frame because we think of all love stories as only being successful if they last Mm. forever. It means that you can carry this profound sense of shame and failure when they when they don't. Well, actually, I think it's a real success to be able to kindly and compassionately both recognise when a relationship isn't working anymore. For another listener, Elizabeth's book gave much needed comfort. Elizabeth's word on relationships of the giving herself to her husband in a way that folded her into even tinier pieces of herself until there was nothing left. I so appreciated Elizabeth's words on relationships of the giving of herself to her husband in a way that folded her into even tinier pieces of herself until there was nothing left. 
the quest to be the perfect version of what you think he wants you to be, the endless caretaking, sacrificing of your own emotions to manage his, the sanctioning of his unacceptable behaviour because you know it will be easier for you to accept it than to confront it, and the huge mental toll that takes on a person's self-image and self-esteem. It was exactly what I needed to hear. It reaffirmed why I packed my bags and decamped my loving but perplexed parents at 35 years old. The very real fact that I may have walked away from my chance to have children. The slow and arduous deconstructions of the intricacies that stitched our lives together. All of that is worth it so you don't lose the opportunity to be authentic to yourself, your needs and your place in the world. Thank you so much to Elizabeth, the interview and her book, which I then bought, provided exactly the context I needed to realise this pain is finite and for the greater good of myself. Thank you for your emails. As ever, you can let us know your thoughts on the show. Send us recommendations or interesting stories and your experiences at thehiloshow at gmail.com or you can send an actual letter to the physical mailbag, care of Grace O'Leary at Independent Talent, the address of which can be found online because we never have it to hand while we're recording because uh, we're not perfect and life is short. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What have you been dipping your wee snoot into over the Easter break? I have been reading. Dipping, say, I have been dipping. I have been dipping my wee snout. <laughs> snout. What's a snout? It's a Scottish snout. I've been dipping my wee snout <laughs> into <laughs> into the first book I'd like to recommend is Fleischman is in Trouble, which is the first novel by Taffy Brodessa Ackner, who is a American journalist initially known for her phenomenal profiles, celebrity profiles in lots of big glossies, particularly in men's magazines, and she now writes for the New York Times. What is your favourite? I know mine instantly. Tom Hiddleston. Mine is Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, I haven't read that one. But she did the she did the Lena Dunham one, didn't? No, that was Alison P. Yeah. Davies. Also yeah. very good. She is one of my all-time favourite journalists, so I was so, so, so excited when a proof of her first novel was sent to me, and it didn't disappoint. I am rambling and rambling about this book everywhere I go to everyone I meet. It's utterly, utterly brilliant. It begins as a very funny, sharply observed story about a successful doctor in Manhattan in his early 40s who is going through a divorce from his wife and navigating how to deal with her, how to co-raise his two children and how to start his life again and how to make sense of the overwhelming hypersexual world of online dating. There are so many hilarious scenes in this book but the passages that detail the messages and the exchanges on dating apps and on the phone with prospective dates and the accounts of the first dates as well are so, so, so funny and incredibly accurate there's also a huge amount of tenderness and longing and trauma in it as well and it does that incredibly sophisticated thing that normally only incredibly experienced fiction writers can do which is it subtly without the reader even noticing certainly I didn't notice it transformed the entire meaning and tone and perspective of the book three quarters of the way through and the ending really surprised me uh, but the surprise kind of crept up in a in a low level way. I completely loved it. Also, 
if you go on a taffy binge and you love all her writing i highly recommend her interview on the long form podcast talking about journalism and how she got to writing i loved david nichols replying to your tweet going i'd love to read this how do i get hold of a copy which is amazing (laughs) i wanted to be like i'll send you mine david i read this book i think at the same time as you and i also really enjoyed it my favorite bit i found it very much a kind of satirical it felt like there were shades almost almost of american psycho in it because it's like an incredibly like wealthy upper middle class sort of white manhattanite keeping up with the joneses the sort of wellness element that's the bit that i thought she did really kind of with this brilliant cynicism and kind of satire but in a way that wasn't like overly judgmental yeah no it it just penetrated that kind of new york neurosis yeah so when like and it made me realize like how unneurotic london is comparison so when toby says i'll have the caesar salad but with no like croutons dressing or cheese and the waitress is like so a piece of baked chicken and lettuce and also the way his estranged wife rachel all of her like motivational tanks like I'm a gonna get some kale or like oh my god because that's a recurring metaphor the recurring and like she invents so many good like the hilarious so many good tanks those awful in Highgate I used to see the mums oh. all the time those like but first hat- coffee yeah those, I have one of those <laughs> you have a t-shirt that says but first coffee yeah um, those like workout t-shirts there was one that said, I can't remember I what... can't believe you have one that says but first coffee I, I, I can't forgive myself what was that pillow it? that you sold on eBay let's make out I've had a shady pass with sloganism. Slogans. Controversial viewpoint. I would like the twist to have come earlier and I wasn't convinced by the narrator. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I know people get fucking hysterical about spoilers and this book isn't out yet. So to be respectful, we shall continue this conversation off mic. It comes out... When does it come out? July? Yeah, August? I think it's July. Pre-order it. Pre-orders count. Yeah, pre-orders really count. I also beg you to pre-order Half-Baked Idea by Olivia Potts, which I read... What an, like, lovely title. I know. And the cover is beautiful. It's this really um, retro... It, you would love it. It looks like marble cake. Oh, um, gorgeous. Yeah. Beautiful cover and even more beautiful book. It's a memoir... And its tagline is how grief, love and cake took me from the courtroom to Le Cordon Bleu. Olivia Potts was trained to be a criminal barrister when her mother died very suddenly and it obviously completely devastated her. And it seems like they were phenomenally close and quite similar people in many ways. In an unexpected turn to deal with her grief, she ended up quitting her job to train in patisserie at the Cordon Bleu. I cannot stress enough how beautiful the prose of this book is. Grief is one of the most universal experiences, yet equally one of the most profoundly idiosyncratic and personal to everyone who is suffering or has suffered in its grasp. It's so hard to pin down the feelings of grief. It's so all-encompassing and yet so nebulous and forever in flux. But somehow she just manages to do it so astonishingly well um, and so economically um, it was poetic but economic, which I think is in its use of words and description, which I think is such a difficult um, balance to strike. Those were the most powerful parts of the book for me when she describes in such a visceral way the depths of sensation in mourning. But there are also some really, really funny bits about how strange mourning can be. There's this bit where she talks about obviously a completely traumatic day of her mother's funeral. And she said after the service the only thing that she could do was obsessively go around to everyone 
and asked them if they're coming if they were coming to the wake and she said she was acting like a manic p- club promoter <laughs> that i mean that just really reminds me of joel golby's essay written about the death of his parents when he was like trying to figure out what like gratitude beer basket to buy the neighbor oh, there were yeah. like two tiers of pricing but the, one of them was a bit expensive for you know a guy in his 20 but the other seemed like a bit stingy to be like thanks for finding my dead yeah. parent and it was heartbreaking but there's a real comedy in that i love that <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is the thing three shots after ten <laughs> but this is the thing that like people don't tell you about grief of how fucking crazy grief is of how like unexplained and unprepared you are for it and how unexplained so many of the feelings are and how hysterical and weird so much of it is i mean lots of people the, that's interesting you saw on hysteria lots of people when they find out really terrible news laugh yeah you know those those i think those emotions are so closely kind of connected like yeah hilarity and devastation and there is a sort of often like a humor in the darkest parts yeah of, of life and i think a lot of it is, is a shock is a, mm, you know coping with shock but i think it's so to. important like olivia goes into those kind of areas uncomfortable areas of how she dealt with her grief so well and i think it's really important so yes a half-baked idea its account of and description of grief is beautiful but there's also fascinating insight into what it's like to be a criminal barrister and the pressures and all the weird antiquated traditions that come with come with the practice and of course, as a greedy guts, I also loved reading about learning the specific crafts of baking in the most elite training school in the world and the, the pressures that uh, are reflected in, in that as well. And it's interspersed with beautiful recipes. So I adored it. It made me cry. It warmed my heart and it made me very hungry. So please either pre-order that or buy it. And it's published in late July. I reread one day ah. um, this last month. That sounded pained. That was meant to be ecstasy, which says it worrying was. things about how I express enthusiasm. I read it about once a year. It's just, oh, it's just it's the best. Perfect. And it's so the last time I read it, I was 23, I think. And it has been such a wonderful experience going back and reading it as a, a woman in her 30s because there is so much it's like you know when you watch kind of Disney films when you're older and you realise there are all those jokes there placed for the adults mm. that you didn't pick up on when you were a kid it's just like I, it's like a completely different book now reading it as someone a little bit older because I just didn't really understand I think so much of what was being described I mean there's still obviously a lot that I don't understand or haven't experienced yet um, and I, I think it will be one of those books that I'll carry on rereading until the day I die and every time I go to read it I'm sure I will take something new from it that resonates with me I wrote a um essay collection for an anthology that's out now called comfort zones all money goes to women for women international so it's a very nice thing to buy and filled with lots of essays by nice writers but i in it i had to write about the 10 books that i really hoped zadie would read one day that i found really formative and one day was one of the books and i said that almost every writer i know has been influenced Mm -hmm. by one day and i don't trust someone that doesn't like one day (laughs) I agree with you. (laughs) Truly, I agree with you. I just wanted to read this passage um, because, you know, it wasn't written that long ago. It was, what, written 10 years ago. But it just, I think, uh, in terms of wedding culture now, and maybe it's just where (laughs) I am in my life, it feels like it's even more pertinent than ever. So David Nichols is writing about all the different waves of weddings, um, and this is about the third wave. The third wave is unstoppable. 
Every week seems to bring another luxuriantly creamy envelope, the thickness of a letter bomb containing a complex invitation, a triumph of paper engineering and a comprehensive dossier of phone numbers, email addresses, websites, how to get there, what to wear, where to buy the gifts. Country house hotels are being block booked. Great schools of salmon are being poached. Vast marquees are appearing overnight like Bedouin tent cities. Silky grey morning suits and top hats are being hired and worn with an absolutely straight face. And the times are heady and golden for florists and caterers, string quartets and Kaylee crawlers, ice sculptors and the makers of disposable cameras. Decent Motown cover bands are limp with exhaustion. Churches are back in fashion. And these days, the happy couple are travelling the short distance from the place of worship to the reception on open-top London buses in hot air balloons on the backs of matching white stallions in microlite planes. A wedding requires immense reserves of love and commitment and time off work, not least from the guests. Confetti costs £8 a box. A bag of rice from the corner shop just won't cut it anymore. It just really made me laugh. <laughs> so yeah, I just uh, fell back in love with that beautiful book. Well, it's very easy to do. And you've, I don't think I've done my 2019 reading yet. So um, I'm going to go back and reread that one. Thank you for reminding me. What have you had your little honker in? Firstly, can we talk about series two of This Is Us? Watch the whole thing. When? Has it been out for a while? Uh, no, I definitely did not go onto a legal website streaming platform. Which I know it is terrible and I shouldn't do it, but we can't all be perfect. And I just can't get enough of Randall and Beth. None of us can actually be perfect. Um, I am watching it at the moment and I'm watching it with Ollie, which means I'm watching it at a slower pace because I can't sneak in an episode while I eat my lunch but um, what, what channels are you watching it on Amazon Prime oh I'm a dick I should have just waited for Amazon Prime <laughs> I'm a dick I'm sorry, I'm sorry but I am hugely enjoying it and at the begin, at first I think Ollie was like you know it's going to be too mawkish for me and it is it really can it can win anyone over well I mean I'm still I'm still claiming that I don't like it you love it. No, I know. So, like, this is... I don't know why. It just... It hooks you in. Also, I think it's because there's more Randall and Beth in this series. And for me, Randall and Beth are just the breakout stars of the show. Um, they are so... I uh, Just the way they talk to each other is also, like, sexy. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Even when they're arguing. They've got great chemistry, those two actors. <laughs> Who's your favourite? My favourite actor... No, your uh, favourite character in This Is Us. Um, I think I love Milo Ventimiglia. I love the... I've forgotten his name in it. The dad. Oh, yeah. I love Jack the dad. Jack Pearson. Yeah, I, I love Jack. Yeah, I think it would be Jack. You don't um, see men written like that on TV very often. He... I think he's an incredibly interesting character because at times when you are perceived to be seeing him as weak like when he's struggling with his alcohol addiction you then learn in the future when um his wife says that you know he was the one that made the decisions and that she called it doing a jack pearson like coming in and just making your day magical so i think at times you look at their relationship and you think oh she's the one that holds it all together Mm -hmm. but then it that's why i think it's just very clever it's incredibly accessible but I think there's a lot of... I think the relationship between... I've literally forgotten any of their names. I think the relationship between the daughter and the mother is really interesting. Kate. Yeah. Because she's like, you're thin and you're beautiful and you've always been a wonderful singer. And this is very hurtful to 
um, her mum, who's just just you know trying to be supportive, mm. but Kate sees it as her being patronising. Mm. Sees it as those prosthetics on Mandy more though, a bit shabby, aren't they? I think she looks quite good as an old woman. I think it does not wash when they're meant to have teenage triplets, and we know for a fact that she waited until she was thirty to have children. So we're meant to believe she's forty-seven, mm. and she's got better skin than you and me. Let's be honest. All right. <laughs> hate it when I group you in with my old my older set I've been reading and watching a lot about wrongful convictions actually men in prison who shouldn't be shocker of the century none of them are white I gobbled in one go the absolutely brilliant BBC drama Undercover did you ever hear about that? no so it came out I think in 2017 it was like a co-production with BBC America starring Adrian Lester and Sophie Okonedo but I had never heard of it then and it's now back on iPlayer Sophie Okonedo's acting is absolutely brilliant and the screenplay is wonderful. It's the most brilliant, incisive, blistering, political script, a properly brilliant drama. Sophie Okonedo plays a defence lawyer who splits her time between London and Louisiana where her client of 20 years is on death row for a crime he didn't commit. I think it was the Sunday Times the other day who posited the longevity of the BBC and all I can say is with dramas like line of duty and undercover the loss of the bbc would be a great loss to all of us i cannot employ you enough if you are looking for a brilliant drama undercover is amazing hardly anything seems to have been written on it i'd really quite like it to have a second coming so let's make that happen brilliant brilliant acting amazing script um on that subject i read a super long form even for the new yorker piece of non-fiction in The New Yorker, about Mohamedou Salahi, a Mauritanian man incarcerated for his supposed ISIS sympathiser status connections and dubbed Guantanamo's darkest secret. Even the existence of Guantanamo, an American detention centre in Cuba, is deeply controversial. Every president in America has at some point, you know, has to declare whether or not he wants to shut down Guantanamo or keep it going. I think for a while, I think Obama wanted to shut it down. And anyway, that didn't happen. Um, It was in the news again today for the firing of its commander. There are only 40 detainees there and they're meant to be obviously very, very kind of high risk criminals. Mm. But it costs an average of $10 million per detainee per year. So the cost, the average running cost of Guantanamo is $445 million a year. So the wrongful conviction of Mohamedou Salahi, who was in prison for 12 years, will have cost the US government over $100 million. That's an expensive mistake, though, of course, you don't read much about them making that expensive mistake um, with presumably taxpayers' money. I'd really advise reading the whole thing. It's available online. New York could do that brilliant thing where they let you read a couple of... I think it's a couple of long reads that you can get for free a month. Although, obviously, I do suggest subscribing to it so you get to read all of them. Um, But I learned a lot about the time of ISIS around 9-11, the American justice and penal system and Guantanamo itself. Even though Salahi is now back in Mauritania, they won't issue him a passport. So he can't travel abroad for an urgent operation he needs for his gallbladder. So he still doesn't have freedom. And the third thing I read on that theme is American Marriage by Tayari Jones about a young, ambitious married couple, Celestial and Roy, who struggle to maintain their relationship when Roy is sent to prison for a crime he did not commit. Doll, I know you know this book because it has just been shortlisted Mm. for the Women's Prize for Fiction. I am so invested in this prize (laughs) because of Dolly. I've I've been buying all 
the books. I think I've got all the books on the shortlist. Yeah. Remind me what's on the shortlist. So it's American Marriage by T.R. Jones. Ordinary People by Diane Evans. Circe. Circe by Madeline Miller. Silence of the Girls. Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker. Milkman. By Anna Burns. And My Sister the Serial Killer. And My Sister the Serial Killer. Um, it's So, American Marriage is... I know that you can't... So boring past too much... Um, on the books because you are a judge no but, but what I can say is because it's obvious because it's on the short list I just loved it well, so much I just thought it was written in such a unique way it's it's mm. inimitable it's it's unpraised from Obama and Oprah so mm. suffice that it's been a big hit in the States I've read less about it over here I hope that its status on the short list means that more people will I mean I've been recommending it to everyone but I don't know if I'd have heard of it unless I checked out the mm. shortlist so I hope it gets a bit more attention um but the shortlist is and this is not me doing propaganda because I'm working with the shortlist the shortlist in terms of how much it boosts author sales is the most extraordinary thing oh it's a make or break isn't it <clears throat> it's it's like a brilliant I, I don't really know about the sales of American marriage here that's we're not given that information but it, it is quite amazing how long-listed authors or short-listed authors how that translates mm. with uh, sales and it is like every other book on that short list my god just a stunning book well i just the thing that i loved about the kind of as i said the inimitable way it's written is this is like honeyed lyricism it's like yes. everything's been bathed in this i mean it's beautiful it's, way of putting it it's a book about the american south and it is like it is drenched in kind of the the southern life and i mean the new york times referred to it and i thought this was wonderful way of putting it the everyday poetry of the african-american community that begs to be heard yeah it really gave i think an insight into an upwardly mobile young black couple but that came from very different backgrounds and that still um i think battle to you know have well battle in the sense that he's in prison for a crime he didn't commit to have the life that they they want and they feel that they deserve i just wanted to read this bit from page 225 because i thought it really oh no i hope it's not the bit that made me cry won't be it won't be because <laughs> it was it's literally just i thought the language was really beautiful here um so celestial is writing about how she sees roy's ghost everywhere when he's in prison I never glimpsed Roy's face in a pan of water or scorched into a slice of toast. My husband's ghost showed itself in the guise of other men, almost always young, haircuts Easter sharp year round. They didn't always share his physical attributes. No, they were as diverse as humanity. But I recognised them by the ambition that clung to their skins like spicy cologne, the slight breeze of power that stirred the air, and finally a morning that left my mouth tasting of ash. It's amazing. Yeah, it's like it rips your heart apart with the way it describes. Oh, ripped through that. Give me some more of your enjoyments from the month. I picked up a short story in a bookshop called Terrific Mother by Laurie Moore. It was just a really... I love Laurie Moore. I've never a, heard of her. Oh, my God. So I should discover her. Adore her. Okay. The first piece that was my gateway drug to Laurie Moore was a piece about what it's like to be a writer and learn to be a writer which I will can I find it online you. yeah yeah it's online I'll and send will you link you. that in the show notes I will link it in the show <laughs> notes and she also wrote a great short story collection called Birds of America 
Um, yeah, so I love Laurie Moore, but also the cover was just totally beautiful and it was right on the till, so that's how I saw it. God, marketing, it just I works. Know. It just, uh, it's almost like it's strategic. Um, so it's a short story that was published in the late 90s and it's a dark comedy about a woman in her 30s who goes to a picnic at her friend's place and who accidentally kills her baby. Oh my God. <laughs> I know, I know. And like, it... It, it, it manages it, to be funny. It's, but it's it's like a bit funny, but it's also like obviously like completely heartbreaking. But it's just like this is how sophisticated a writer mm. Laurie Moore is um, that you feel completely safe in the sentences. You mm-hmm. don't feel uncomfortable or on edge or like it's distasteful. Um, it takes a very surreal, trippy twist at the end. Um, but there's a lot to identify with throughout it, bizarrely. And I completely loved it. I read the whole thing in a short train journey. And it was just one of those stories. She's one of those writers that when you read it as a writer, it electrifies your brain into wanting to write something. The minute I put it down, I opened my notebook and started writing. Her I work, love that feeling. Yeah, it's so... And it's actually... It's quite... Uh, rare to to, for a writer to galvanize you reading a writer to galvanize you specifically in that way but it's just synapse poppingly stimulating and this book serves i think as a modern kind of allegory or a metaphor for the shame and fear that women feel about either not having children or not wanting children or being deemed unmaternal in Mm. their 30s let me read you the first page although she had been around them her whole life It was when she reached 35 that holding babies seemed to make her nervous. Just at the beginning, a twinge of stage fright singing up from the gut. Adrian, would you like to hold the baby? Would you mind? Always these words from a woman her age looking kind and beseeching. A former friend. She was losing her friends to babble and beseech. And Adrian would force herself to breathe deep. Holding a baby was no longer natural. She was no longer natural. But a test of womanliness and earthly skills. She was being observed. People looked to see how she would do it. She had entered a puritanical decade, a demographic moment, wherever it was, when the best compliment you could get was, you would make a terrific mother, the wolf whistle of the 90s. Oh, I love that, the wolf whistle of the 90s. And I tweeted that passage, and dreamy David Nichols said that he loves Laurie Moore as well, so we should all love Laurie Moore. It's like the David Nichols show today, isn't it? (laughs) He's your new Dr Buckles. (laughs) Always got to have a man, haven't you, Dolly? Oh God, I look forward to all those emails with the thoughts on that. <laughs> I'm also really enjoying Close to Where the Heart Gives Out by Malcolm Alexander, which is a memoir of a doctor who moved along with his young family from the hustle and bustle of Glasgow and his practice there to a very remote island on the Orkney archipelago. Oh, of course he moved <laughs> to an island on the Orkney archipelago and of course he read a <laughs> Any long-time listeners of the podcast will know I visited Orkney a couple of years ago. It was actually when I just started first writing my books. It was two years ago. And I wrote a piece about Orkney and I was completely transfixed by the Do you just go to Amazon and type in Orkney as a search term? Is that how you found this? (laughs) No, a proof was sent to me. But I, I do... It's so weird. Orkney, unlike any other place I've been, really did get under my skin. India and I got drunk and we booked some flights there for September. Oh my god. So I'm gonna get to go back there. But I think about it all the time and weirdly I always am like Googling pictures of Orkney or looking it on a map. How much do listeners do you bet that Dolly, while drunk, forgot that she records the Hilo and will now will be telephoning in from Orkney for that week's episode? (laughs) 
Um, don't worry, I've worked it around the highlight. <laughs> um, so, yes, I love reading any accounts of what it's like to be in Orkney and experience that particular type of island life. Amy Liptrot's beautiful memoir, The Outrun, is my favourite book on the subject. I think the thing for me with Orkney, other than the fact it is just stunningly beautiful and I'm fascinated by its history, is that, you know, I'm like a city and suburban kid. This is that, that amount of space is such a foreign thing to me um and I've never been somewhere where I felt so free and like there was so much space like Orkney so I just love these the descriptions of the landscape and the descriptions of everyday life um and the way he describes the the very slow moving practice and the very traditional methods of filing and organization which hadn't been touched by modern technology um I found very interesting and funny in places and the account of how he immersed himself into the community I found very interesting and there's a very funny description at the beginning about how he physically got his home and his life over to the island and they literally had to put his car in what sounds just like a giant net lifted by a crane (laughs) onto a ferry so yeah I'm really enjoying that book hit me up with some more recommendations Panda other great books I read while I was off included the previously mentioned My Sister the Serial Killer. This is a debut novel by Oyinkan Braithwaite about a young Nigerian woman who keeps killing her boyfriends. <laughs> it was... It's very original. Um, it's so brilliant. I read it? it very, very quickly and was, was yeah, totally struck by it. It's funny and clever. I haven't read anything like that. I didn't find the ending very satisfying, but perhaps that was deliberate i really want to read more about it and hear what more people think of it i keep desperately googling so can more people read it so that i can talk about it with people it's it's a hypnotic mix isn't it when something is equal parts chilling and hilarious yeah it must be such a difficult craft but also it's 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 such a strange book as well in an interesting way but the characters are so you know you wonder why is this why is she so empathetic to her sister you know why is she always being an accessory to murder um and it's also it's quite simple and it's quite sparse so in the hands of a different writer there might be more more about what you know her motivations for doing I think the frustration is part of it though you know I think the idea that all books have to deliver the same sense of well that's tied up with a, in a bow I'll always remember remember that film Arlington Road no so it's a like really dark film and basically the baddies get away with it and I remember watching that film when I was younger and I was furious that mm. they got away with it I couldn't believe it so I think whenever there's a, a story that doesn't fill in every blank for me and kind of issue this really moralistic narrative I struggle against that but that isn't to say that those books shouldn't exist do you know mm. what I mean it's almost like you had a catholic upbringing <laughs> and I read this is the story of a happy marriage an anthology of non-fiction essays by Anne Patchett Anne Patchett is a really well-known successful author but I don't think she's as well-known with our generation. Have you read anything by her? No, do you know, I've only really started... I've only really started being cognizant of her work because she's great friends with Elizabeth Gilbert and Elizabeth Gilbert quotes her so often. She's, I mean, like, one of the most successful novelists out you know in kind of contemporary american literature. My older sister is obsessed with her and, can, you know, could never believe that I hadn't, as a sort of... as a reader, that I hadn't read anything from her. Um, I... 
This is The Secret of a Happy Marriage is a series of non-fiction essays. Um, she's best known for Bel Canto, which has just been turned into a film starring Julianne Moore. It's at the cinemas mm. now. I prefer her non-fiction to her fiction, I think. Um, she has written some brilliant essays in this anthology that you would really like, Dolly. She wrote one about publishing books, which is very funny and says a lot about what I know that you and other authors have said before, which is the strangeness of being very much secluded when you're writing the book and then sort of put out like an animal at a fair to, to, mm. to talk about the book. Mm. So she write, she talks a lot about that. She talks about setting up her own bookshop in Nashville um, and sort of the surprising success of that. And the titular essay, This is the Secret of a Happy Marriage, is a really funny, interesting essay on how she never wanted to marry her second husband. Mm. Um, and I really can't recommend it enough. It's, it's, a, it's it, it, they're gentle essays, but that, I don't mean that they're somehow kind of fragile or dry or banal. They're just like, a lot of the essays being written now are, which is great, quite polemic mm. and incisive. And Anne's are in a very different canon mm. to that, but I really enjoyed that, them. That sounds like a fascinating mixture of subjects. Back to you, doll, passing the baton back. I watched Private Lives, which is a gut-wrenching film about a couple with fertility struggles starring Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti. It has a compelling plot about the lengths this couple will go to to have a baby and the repercussions their decisions have on their family and their marriage. And I think both give completely stunning performances and it was one of the most clear and immersive cinematic portrayals I've seen of what that desperate situation feels like for so, so many couples. Uh, so I highly recommend that. I haven't seen a film about that particular struggle, and yet it's a struggle that is so well known. I mean, it, it's... Every, I, I'm really realising this as I get into this decade of my life. It's so common, and yet I feel like there is still so much secrecy and shame around it, and I think it's... it's we're in such urgent need of more discussion about is it. Is that at the cinema? No, no, these are these. <laughs> I'm about to recommend another film as well. My friend Lauren and I went in April to a cottage on a cliff in Cornwall with no Wi Fi, no television, and no phone signals. Did you watch this? So Downloaded beforehand them before and watched them in front of a roaring fire. Are they on Netflix? Uh, yeah, so these are on okay. Netflix. I'm going to watch that. I also watched Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, which is a really, really, really funny film written and directed by Mike Burbiglia, which is about a which is about a successful improvisational comedy troupe and what happens when one of them is picked up uh, to be a performer on, it's not SNL, they give it a different name, but what is so obviously SNL. And the film follows the troupe watching his meteoric rise and how their collective falls apart. It's such a good portrayal of the nature of success and competition. And, I mean, if anyone who who has been a writer or a performer or in a particularly competitive industry where you have to put yourself so much front and centre will know the murderous, murderous pain and sourness that you can feel when one of your peers experiences meteoric success. And it's such a complicated feeling. And it, Lauren and I, because Lauren's also... Lauren and I both used to do a lot of theatre together when we were younger, and Lauren's a writer as well. Lauren and I both were bonding so much throughout it, just being like, 
God, they've, it's such an uncomfortable thing that they've just got so right in this film. So I, and also it was so interesting to me because the thing that you hear all the time in the British TV industry is that TV about TV or films about TV are not interesting to anyone else other than the people who work in those industries. It's too esoteric. It's too elitist. Um, it doesn't fascinate anyone. And it, it's so weird to me that we still think that because you only have to look at 30 Rock to know that that's not true and to know that the tier systems uh, within the entertainment industry, those kind of feudal systems, are so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And also the entertainment industry is the thing, you know, what's the average that we all watch TV a day? Fucking five hours apparently. You know, is it's TV is and it's in our lives. how many people watch a day? I think she used to say at the top of Gogglebox. Was it five or did they say three? God, I am so restrained. <laughs> Maybe I've got that wrong. Cutting but, you know, TV that. is our modern theatre and art form. Mm. It's, I, I don't understand how, yeah. how British commissioners still can't see that it's a, it's a universal thing, even if you're mm. not working from the inside. There's a fascination to how it all works. Uh, so, yeah, loved that. I also would like to recommend a podcast series called The Last Bohemians, which is a totally beautiful and fascinating interview series in which journalist Kate Hutchinson speaks to female mavericks and disruptors and daredevils and revolutionaries and flanners. Flanners! Flanners, my favourite word. Maybe they should be flanneresses, um, who are in relative later life. Um, and the conversations are them reflecting on their past and present, their politics, sexuality, changing sexuality as they get older is, is, a, is a common theme. Marriages, motherhood, art, the things they've created, the mistakes they've made, various scenes that they were immersed in um, and kind of reflections on friendship and family. It's so thoughtfully done. And I just love hearing from these women who have so much important, intelligent, wise things to say and who are so rarely given platforms to say them and be properly heard and revered, which is what they deserve for having lived so fully. Bonnie Greer is a great episode, but it is 87-year-old Welsh artist Molly Parkin, who I could listen to forever and whose episode that I've loved the most. There was a big uh, limo, you know, came to collect him and and he wouldn't let go of my hand. And then we went to that uh, huge hotel just by Gloucester Road tube station. I assumed that he when he was in the bathroom that he'd given himself a jab of something because when he came out he was naked and bodily naked is is something (laughs) that was the biggest cock I'd ever ever had that's an amazing clip thank you for that I know, and if anyone liked that, they should go and listen to her Desert Island Disc. Unsurprisingly, sorry, I'm a broken record. Uh, Panda, (laughs) tell me what else you've been enjoying. I read a book that, quite honestly, changed my life. I cannot believe I was 32 before I discovered it. It, I just thought it was one of the most amazing things I've ever read, and it now lives on my desk so that I can revisit it at any time. It's a book of essays which were kindly sent to me called Bad Behaviour, written by Mary Gateskill in 1988. I had, to my shame, never heard of Mary Gateskill. I haven't either, and I've seen that short story collection everywhere. I meant to buy one for you. Um, You will absolutely love it. 
I cannot believe it took four years to find a, pub- a publisher. It just boggles my mind. But Mary Gates was very, very young when she wrote it. I think she was only in her mid-twenties. So yeah, it lives on my desk and I revisit it anytime I want to um, see how women felt 30 years ago and how that compares to women, um, how women feel now. I thought I'd never heard of Mary Gates School, but actually I was familiar with her work without knowing. She wrote the short story Secretary in 1988, which was then turned into a film starring Maggie Gyllenhaal. Did you ever mm. see that film? No, I didn't, but I've heard of it. Um, she thought it was a bit soft, the, the cinematic version. The blurb says that these stories are about desire and dislocation in New York in the 80s. But they're also about miscommunication and loneliness and adultery and drug abuse and the fragmentation of women and how affection can so quickly turn to petty cruelty. Um, I want to read a paragraph from an essay called Trying to Be, which I think will resonate with a lot of people. And also just completely dispels the myth that the way women feel now is, you know, a way that no women have ever felt before. Women have basically felt the same forever even though their choices change stephanie had always admired dara even though she was not friendly and had once been very rude to stephanie on the phone but dara seemed pleased to see her and hung onto her presence throughout a shockingly dull conversation that stumbled awkwardly through sandra's work sandra's husband a writer stephanie liked in a movie still stephanie resolutely held on to the idea of dara as an interesting person she said you seem like someone who is at home in the world a startled look flared in dara's eyes she glanced at stephanie with disappointment Nothing could be further from the truth, she said shortly. I doubt you know anyone less at home than me. They stood silently, Stephanie's silence a disheartened one. She had thought she was making a penetrating remark that would impress Dara with her perceptiveness. Instead, she had revealed herself to be a person living in a dream world. This was always happening. Um, And there's just a lot of these... I love the way she writes. Oh, you're absolutely... You'll absolutely love it. I can't, I can't even, like, summarise all of these um, essays. But, no, they're, they're completely wonderful, and I am so glad I came to it, albeit later. I wish I'd discovered her in my early 20s. Speaking of books I completely loved and... Um, can't stop thinking about I absolutely loved Trick Mirror a book of essays by the New Yorker writer Gia Tolentino which is out in August along with Emily Nussbaum Gia is one of my favourite writers at the New Yorker she writes a ton for them as well so she's clearly a rising star there these are really up my street. We're interested in very similar things like the market worth of women, the optimization of the self, the fact that we're drowning in the internet. And I post-it noted so many interesting bits. I found something fascinating that she said about looking fake. I, I found something that she said about looking fake really fascinating. She said, Kim Kardashian is not successful in spite of her superficiality, but because of it. We always assume, I think as a generation reared on Kate Moss, that that looking fake is something to be ashamed of, that a woman looks fake as a byproduct of what she does to herself or unintentionally rather than the end goal. You know, the idea is to look like she was born with it, that it sort of came effortlessly. Mm. But Gia says it behoves Kim, I love that word, to look like an augmented woman and that, that there is nothing particularly feminist or brave about making decisions that improve your wealth and market value and I thought that was really interesting because in a really clever way she calls into question this idea of Kim as a kind of new breed of empowered feminist idol the idea that you know just because she looks like a very different body to what we're used to um, 
seeing that that doesn't make it a courageous move it makes it a pretty straightforward move mm-hmm. you're you're improving your market worth and you're making yourself richer in the process um i found that completely fascinating as i do anything that looks at kind of women's bodies in a slightly more academic way dolly i think you'd love the essay ivy dread about quote unquote the slow burning insanity that came from attending 46 weddings before the age of 30 oh my god <laughs> as a fellow that's um, a lot as a fellow critic um of the ostentatious fan <laughs> <laughs> around the modern wedding this essay will really chime with you and I think you'll also like the essay about reality television which reveals Gia's best kept secret about her a secret she says that she even kept from herself that when she was 16 she spent four weeks on a reality TV show called Girl vs Boys filmed in Costa Rica and she still has an IMDB page oh God, for it hilarious. for anyone who likes zeitgeisty cultural commentary but through an incredibly smart lens as academic as they are topical and that is my preferred medium in a nutshell I I really recommend these essays and I think you'll find so many interesting things in them, Don. You'll be post-it noting like I was. Oh, fab. I will read that. Back to you. I loved Glenda Jackson on Fresh Air, who I'm sure everyone knows about, uh, our patron saint, Glenda, my patron saint, Glenda Jackson. She's an actor who's in her 80s. Um, she was originally an actor and then a Labour MP, and now she is acting again. She's playing King Lear. Amazing. Yeah, and it's so much ground is covered uh, in this interview. Those Terry Gross interviews that I just love so much. Um, she talks about the kind of transition between those jobs and, and the different between those roles she talks about her thoughts on brexit from the outside looking in as someone who was in the middle of those conversations and debate and what she feels looking in on them which is unsurprisingly total despair Uh, she talks about this very famous speech that she gave in the days after margaret thatcher died uh, which was kind of divisive because it was she said she talks in this interview um about how she had sat and listened to the conservative, various conservative MPs, she says, rewrite history in the way that they were describing Margaret Thatcher. And Glenda Jackson stood up and did this kind of eviscerating speech about everything that Margaret Thatcher stood for, that she is in extreme opposition to. She talks about her kind of lack of empathy for the vulnerable, lack of uh, of desire for community uh, sharp elbows sharp sharp knees it's a very famous speech and you can hear she was heckled and booed massively and they play the whole speech out in the interview and then she talks about it it's it's so interesting to hear why what an she amazing, did that. and also a moment in history that we weren't really familiar with at the time it would be mm. great to learn it now as adult women yeah exactly i mean i was obviously aware of thatcher dying at the time but i definitely don't remember that speech from glenda jackson no normally so I really enjoyed hearing her thoughts on on that specific moment in time. And of course, talking about playing King Lear and what it's like to, to do that gender swap with that role and how she believes Shakespeare translates into modern day. It's a really, really great interview. She's so articulate and just no nonsense. And she, to me, represents a very specific type of British woman who... I one day really aspire to be. There's a straightforward braveness to her that I just adore. So, yeah, I could listen to Glenda Jackson speak about anything all day. Tina Fey was brilliant on David Tennant's podcast. I loved learning more about her career journey and what it was like to be the first female head writer on SNL, as well as um, 
a lot of discussion about 30 Rock and how it was made and where it came from and balancing running a writer's room while she was raising a family. There's also an extraordinary detail in it in which she says that David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister, approached her because he wanted to talk to her about the model of of how American TV, like long multi-episode series, were made because he thinks that British TV could learn something or two about it. Like... If he'd spent less time doing that, you, I mean, the maybe Ab- we wouldn't be in the mess we're in now. But the Obamas are creating content for Netflix. But this is when he was prime minister. <laughs> I mean, I just can think of so many more. Ad- Have I told you my favourite David Cameron story? No, although I did read just recently that he's delayed his memoir again. Carry on. Has he? Yeah. It's already 400,000 words long. I mean, isn't that the, that is the same length as War and Peace? Yeah, he wrote it in his two garden sheds. <laughs> I've read this clearly in a newspaper. None of this can be corroborated. What's your okay, favourite David so Cameron this is, I did not read this in a newspaper. This has come through a friend of a friend, which is, we must say, a tawdry little morsel, and it's very much alleged, but I think everyone will enjoy it. This friend of a friend was on a plane, a commercial flight, right for the referendum, and David Cameron and his team were on the plane as well. And apparently it was literally like a week before the referendum. It was completely insane, the atmosphere with all the, with his whole team kind of running from aisle to aisle. Everyone was on their computers. They were just on like a random easy jet flight, rather than sequestered away in a... No, they were on a a commercial flight. Uh, And everyone was like, you know, discussing... Do you have a highlighter? (laughs) Has anyone got the budget sheet? I think I left it in the loo. That kind of stuff. And for the entire journey... David Cameron, allegedly... Played Candy Crush. ...was sitting with his earphones in, on an iPad, watching the original of Jumanji. (laughs) I think this is desperately unfair. It might have been his only five minutes off. (laughs) He watched the entire film through the whole flight. Might have been pre-arranged David time. (laughs) You've got pre-arranged Dolly time. (laughs) Anyway, so that's my tawdry morsel. Um, I also have always loved Fortunately, but in the you last... You seem to become obsessed with it since we went on it. <laughs> well, I've always really liked it, but the last couple of months... Do you know what it is? India is it, 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 as obsessive as I am, my friend India, and I was away with her, and she is not able to sit in silence without listening to an episode of Fortunately. Like, she, her and her boyfriend are completely obsessed. So I got into this kind of binge listening of the whole archive through her. I've listened to every single episode now. And I have to say, and in times when I felt completely at sea, it has been a rudder to me. And I have fallen so in love with both of them. And I would like to insert a clip here where Fee is talking in praise of millennials and Jane, who has teenage daughters, is responding to her. I love the company of 20-somethings. Do you? They see the world really differently. They seem to be far more eloquent, engaged, thoughtful than, than we ever were yeah, okay. in our quite, 20s. I'm sure they're lovely. I don't want them to be eloquent and engaged around me. I'd like them to go somewhere else and eloquently engage each other, frankly. Um, I, I'm, the people, young people I have to put up with are three 15-year-old girls in tracksuit bottoms and some form of popular t-shirt type contraption in my kitchen eating Doritos and about half three four o'clock in the afternoon and making cakes in a cup have you had that phenomenon oh yes in the microwave yeah 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 yeah, all of that and I'm thinking you know uh, oh I just want I want scented candles I want peace and quiet 
I just want to lie on the couch, wait for Pointless, and then read a few women's hour briefing notes. I don't want this. I don't want okay. to have to, you know, I don't want all this frivolity. And, and their laughter. Oh, God. Gosh, right, we're in very different ballparks. We really are. Yeah. They have such a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you... All the time! The last book that blew my mind is Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. I've... Oh, I've just started reading that. Oh, I've basically realised that all the fiction and non-fiction I've been reading, mostly, is about the interior lives and the interior lives denied of women. Mm. There's a common there's a common theme here. Who'd have thunk it? Anyway, there's been a lot of hype for this book, so clearly the mind-blowing element is to be expected. Simon's just paid seven figures yeah. for it. It's a really unusual book, and before I started, I did not know what to expect, and I actually think I selected it from the pile. It was the... A, you know Dolly and I are very lucky to get sent um, proofs of books sometimes that are going to come out and it was at the bottom of that pile of proofs and I think what sent me to it is I read a few tweets from other journalists who were like oh my god this book is this book is amazing Tashlan said she thinks it's the most important book she's ever read but because it's quite hard to describe I think that's what muddled me and put me off anyway don't be put off basically the journalist um, and academic Lisa Tadeo embeds herself into the lives of three American women. She interviews countless women before to kind of before she finds her three women. She moves to the towns that they live in for a period of time so she can get to know the minutiae of their lives. And she interviews them and the people around them for eight years. And then she tells their stories concurrently. But it's written sort of novelistically. Yeah. And obviously all identifying details have been changed. Yeah. Um, unless, I, I think unless... The, the, what she was writing about was public. It basically yeah. depended on the woman. Um, she did say she had a woman that she would, you know, had been really excited about, and then the woman just freaked out and backed out. Yeah. These women are all from different backgrounds, but what unites them is that their lives are all impacted, governed even, by sex and shame, or by desire and shame. Sloane is a wealthy woman who likes having threesomes with her husband and is judged for it. Lena is unhappy in a sexless marriage and has an affair with her high school boyfriend. Maggie was groomed by her high school teacher and years later is seeking justice. I'm not giving away anything there because there's not spoilers. You're following them through those stories. But the stories are so much more than their stories, which I feel like when you reduce them to a sentence, each almost sound like chiclet which i hate and says a lot about how the sexual lives of women often sound Mm. like chiclet especially when you're describing them and this is so definitively not chiclet and i think i know what tash means when she says how important it is in reframing them in this context it might be the first time i've read about the everyday and the sexual lives of women and they so clearly not be defined as a certain category of literature and I think that says a lot about women's writing um, and how we categorise female emotion as well and interior experience. In her prologue Lisa Tadeo explained the impulse to write a book like this came from her mother. I think about my mother's sexuality and how she occasionally used it. To me it always seemed like a strength or a weakness but never its own pounding heart. How wrong I was. It's the nuances of desire that hold the truth of who we are in our rawest moments. I set out to register the heat and sting of female want so that men and other women might more easily comprehend before they condemn. How are you finding it so far, doll? Just addictive, totally addictive. Yeah, I think I read it all over... I think I tried to read it all in one night, but my damn eyes betrayed me and <laughs> closed before I before Yeah, I finished. roaring through it. Brilliant. Dave Eggers and Elizabeth Gilbert pronounced it one of the most scorching debuts they had ever read. And interestingly, I think they both used the word scorching. Speaking of Dave Eggers, have you read a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius? No. So that was his breakout 
read in 2000. Um, I'm thinking of giving it another another go. It blew me away when I read it a decade ago. Um, and it was so... It was a really cult read. It got so much attention that I actually, when I was reading around it uh, today, because I suddenly remembered it, it actually had a whole piece, I think, in The Guardian about the reactions to it right. and how well it had sold in America. But just if anyone hasn't read it yet, because it's a book that so stands the test of any time and it really is like a great contemporary American, not novel, but it's at times written quite novelistically. It's about when Dave Eggers was a young man, his parents both died within five months of each other. And it was about him raising his siblings and how they experienced life. And I mean, the title I just thought was amazing, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Mm -hmm. And there's so much, there's so many literary devices and different kind of canons and styles deployed across it. It's kind of quite like a medley in that sense. Anyway, most people know Dave Eggers for The Circle, but I think that that is um, just the most amazing thing he's written. Anyway, Three Women is out in July. Pre-order it now. If Reese Witherspoon does not snap up the TV rights to this, I will eat my hat, because she seems to be the de facto maker of women's desire and secrecy. (laughs) Um, Give me your final recommendation, Doll. My final recommendation, which is going to play us out, is a new album by a singer, musician and multi-instrumentalist I've been listening to and I have loved for the last decade called Andrew Bird. And if you like this song, go on an Andrew Bird binge as there is a veritable treasure trove of sonic serenity for you to discover. The 2012 album that he made called uh, Break It Yourself is one of my all-time favourites. The album is called, much like that David Eggers book that you just mentioned, My Finest Work Yet. (laughs) And uh, luckily I'm inclined to agree with him. It's exquisitely soulful and I promise this is the last reference that we make about dreamy David Nichols for a while, but I bonded on Twitter with him as he said that he loves Andrew Bird too. So I think that's reason enough to start listening to the Andrew Bird catalogue this is my favorite track from the album called bloodless so there you have it a bumper chat about books and women and life and love and music thank you for listening to the high low please remember to rate review and subscribe it boosts us in the charts and helps other people find us you can tweet us at the high low show or email us the high low show at gmail.com bye-bye bye they are profiting from your worry Selling blanks down at the DMZ The banking on the sound and fury Makes you wonder what it all's got to do with me Bloodless for now